You're listening to the oneofus.net podcast network. One of Us is a podcast and video network funded all but entirely by donations and subscriptions. We do accept pitches for audio-based or banner ads, but on a case-by-case basis. If you're interested in that, contact us at oneofusnet at gmail.com. With the amount of audio and video content we generate, it is expensive and extremely time-consuming to keep things running. Please go to the webpage oneofus.net and sign up for a subscription at 2 5 10 or $25 and get a ton of bonus content. One of us needs and appreciates all your support. Welcome to Digital Noise. I'm your host, Chris. Joining me this week is Sir John Golson. Uh, excuse me, that's best of Austin nominee, John Golson. I'm oh, not Sir oh, John Golson. Sorry. You will address me by my formal, <laughs> formal title going Sir. forward is best of Austin nominee, <laughs> John, John Golson. Golson. Oh, fair enough. Well, you know, like uh, Wright is one of the other Digital Noise guys was offended that you were Sir, so he insisted he's uh, Sir Doctor, mm. Wright Sulak. Sir Doctor. <laughs> I don't want to know what Aaron's going to take on. He gets hmm. it when he hears about this mess. But oh, uh, you! I think you should explain. He gave me a doorway, and I just went, "Nope, don't see it." Like <laughs> I'm going to open that door. What, John Golson? Are you nominated for Best of Austin? If only it was one thing, Chris. <laughs> what, oh, so you would have preferred just one thing, or are you just being um, modest? Uh, uh, I was in some definition for, I was, of that word. I I'm personally, my name was on the ballot for uh, Best Graphic Novelist, uh, Comic Creator. Huh? Um, and then my comedy troupe was nominated for Best Comedy Troupe, the one I write and direct and produce their show. And wasn't there another one that you had like sort of like a sort of a third tier connection to? I thought there was something else. You were like, well, I've kind of connected to them. In no, a no, way. no. I there's, thought there was something else. No. Okay. I mean, there's other things like, for instance, the, I think the connection that you're drawing is that the work that I, the comic work that I've done was for Drew Edwards. Who was also a best of nominee. Right. And so there was, I was being very, um, I wouldn't have gotten a nomination without Drew giving me the work to get a nomination in the first place. Mm. And so anytime Drew would, uh, try to promote or tweet or ask people to get the vote out, I would always retweet or share or whatever again, because, you know, he, he kind of brought me to the dance in some ways. So that one was kind of unexpected. The Voyagers thing, I didn't. I don't that's, your, say, that's your troop. Yeah, I don't want to say campaign for, but it was a case of like, I knew the numbers game was in our favor because <laughs> there weren't a lot of sketch shows in 2021, if any. And so I was like, hey, we should throw our name in the hat if like telling the people in the troop like you should you should throw our name in the hat for best comedy troop simply because nobody did sketch in 2021. Like there was improv shows, but there were so few sketch shows. Right. And like I don't know. You know, I I assume that other people also nominated us. I don't assume it was just us. There's not that many of us unless literally no one is writing any comedy troupe names. Sure. Um, but I figured the numbers were on our side with that one. And they were, apparently. Yeah. And, um, and then the comic thing was just, that was took me completely off guard. Like, that was a total surprise because I didn't, I didn't really, like, ask people or beat the stump on that at all. Uh, now I'm on that list with like Becky Cloonan who writes Wonder Woman and, and like freaking Donnie Cates who writes 
uh, Hulk. Yeah. And I, so I don't expect <laughs> to win. <laughs> but, you know, we'll see. You Sometimes know, the they, indie guy squeaks by. You know, what do they need awards for? Right? It's like, what, how, what, are they going to escalate their career by doing what exactly? Like, right. What do they get? They're not like they're going to put their Best of Austin award up, <laughs> up on their mantelpiece, you know, right? if yeah. I win, I did tell myself I would buy the banner and hang it from my balcony. <laughs> My apartment that, that would be amazing. You should totally do that. I've I've also uh, I've been nominated and won, but not as a person, as part of an institution mm-hmm. several times over you know thirty some years. I've been living here yeah. either for bars, restaurants I worked at that got nominated or oh, won, cool, cool, cool. or for back in the uh, public access days. Yeah, we we won it a couple times. That's badass. But I, either way, I'm always like, well, I didn't win technically. No, you, but you. <laughs> Did win, Chris. Did I? wouldn't have been nominated without your contribution. Uh, you know, it's not the awards. It's the friends we make along the way. So mm-hmm. oh, That's true. That is true. And I hate all of them now. That's true. <laughs> I that's hope they true. die in a fire. <laughs> anyway, so we are here to release it. It's Digital Noise. We don't talk about Austin stuff unless it's relevant, which that wasn't, but except that John Golson and Sir John Golson is now Best of Austin nominee Surge. I only Golson. really get to wear it for like one show, unless I win, and then you'll never hear the end of it. Oh but, God! Uh, yeah, I know some people at the Chronicle. Maybe said make some phone calls. <laughs> Don't let this guy win. <laughs> All ego. <laughs> he was fine. He was the nicest guy mm-hmm. till he won that Best of Austin award. And then he was just like mm-hmm. flying it off his balcony like an asshole. Rub my feet, Cox. <laughs> I need. I need to be limbered up for digital noise. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we're going to get into it with our first film, going back to 1946, Blue Skies, directed by Stuart Heisler and starring Bing Crosby, Fred Astaire, and Joan Caulfield, uh, based on a story from Irving Berlin, a legendary Irving Berlin, one of the great, all-time great uh, composers. Yeah, Irving Berlin wrote Take your breath, take My Breath Away from Top Gun. What? That Berlin? What? That was, no, uh, that was a different Berlin. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> uh, so... <laughs> I love musicals. Like I just for digital noise the other day rewatched Singing in the Rain on 4K, uh, and it's just a perfect musical. Yeah, there's like great. literally not a single thing wrong with that. It's just perfect. Uh, and then there's movies like this one. Oh, hey. <laughs> Once again, Chris and I are of a like mind. <laughs> I was so excited for this because I'm like, okay, I love Bing Crosby and Fred Astaire. You know, I love good dance movies, and I honestly, my ex- like my experience with Gene Kelly movies is huge. Yeah, my experience with you know his biggest competitor, Fred Astaire, is minuscule. I've only seen, I haven't even seen like Top Hat and stuff like that. Stuff considered to be his best, but I'm like, okay, and I say I love Bing Crosby. I probably say I love Bing Crosby comedian imitators <laughs> impressionists so it's like, there's just something about that voice he's got such a great voice and uh i was like okay well let's do this thing and like i honestly it was generally thought as a pretty good um uh musical when it came out in fact um it was honored it was nominated for two oscars when it came out so i'm like okay how bad could this be well <laughs> <laughs> You know, when you watch those movies and you're like, I can't stand everyone in this film. They're all truly awful, narcissistic, terrible people. And the movie doesn't know it. They're the worst movies you can watch. And this is one like that for me where I guess the whole time we're supposed to be. I mean, I'm, it's unclear if we're supposed to be on Bing Crosby's side, Fred Astaire's side, or Joan Caulfield's side, but all of them are kind of horrible. And it's like, 
All right. So it's uh, after World War One. Two guys, the two male leads here, came friends in the army. Uh, uh, Fred Astaire is a rising dancer. And then uh, Johnny Adams, Bing Crosby is sort of a business guy who just buys bars and restaurants and like and then sells them and buys another one. Uh, you know, places that back in the day were like the Copacabana, places like that. They were like, like not just a restaurant, but a place that was a showcase for yeah. acts. You know, I was just reading about that in the book, The Comedians and the death of that. Very fascinating. I've gotten up to the death of that in that book. You should read The Comedians. It's a really good book. It is really good. Uh, anyway, so... Uh, Fred Astaire falls in love with a band singer, Mary, played by Joan Caulfield. Uh, he basically is just like the most lecherous dude in the world, like hands off, buddy, you know, just like, come on, you're going to be mine. You're going to be mine because I'm a nice guy. I'm such a nice guy. How can you say no to a nice guy? And she immediately decides she likes Bing Crosby instead the, uh, to his to the only credit I'll give this movie is Astaire is at least like, fine, whatever. <laughs> And just backs off immediately, <laughs> you know, like a girl's always throw me away for the better looking guy, can, uh, the, the rich dude. But the movie just kind of follows these sort of ups and downs in the relationship between these three people is like comes and goes. And every time like Bing Crosby throws her away, Fred Astaire's there to pick her up. And then the moment Bing Crosby shows back up, she's like, I'm going with him again. Is that OK? And he's like, fine, whatever. I don't understand what this movie was trying to accomplish. It's just a showcase. It is a, it is a thin rom-com as sort of a uh, clothesline from which to hang Irving Berlin musical numbers. Which, which are most of the jukebox musical, musicals at this point, even Singing in the Rain, were essentially that. See, but I think Singing in the Rain has like a good plot and like interesting characters it was, and like it was lucky that yeah. it did to some extent because like there's so many like that that don't, but. I think that was rare because there weren't a lo- awful lot of really get into it meta musicals like that. Cause it really was. It was a totally meta, like backstage musical. Yeah. Uh, and that one, yeah, for whatever reason, what they added on, even like Broadway melody, which, you know, when you look at the rest of the whole rest of the film, you're like, why is this in here? But it does make perfect sense in the context of the film. Here it's all just like, yeah, just loosely hung, like a plot stuff to like, to make these songs on it. And I wasn't really, I, I mean, the songs are fine, I guess, but I think the main thing is, like, the putting on the Ritz song is probably the best sequence of this. Maybe it's just because I know that one. But I wasn't wildly impressed with the dancing in this. I was like, yeah, this is just okay. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm not wrong. You're not wrong. I am so excited. It is slight. It is a trifle. Um, you know, I guess fans... Fans, uh, diehard fans of Fred Astaire or Bing Crosby maybe mention it with their other movies, but it's not a movie necessarily that I've heard of a lot, like, over the years. I don't hear no. people bringing up, like, oh, Blue Sky, it's so good, one of my <laughs> favorites. Um, yeah, it's just really thin. It's made to stitch songs together. And I... I prefer ones where it's where you got the two leads and they really are dancing together. This is like for this scene, Fred Astaire dances. This scene, Bing Crosby sings. This scene, Fred Astaire dances. This scene, Bing Crosby sings. And you're like, eh, yeah. I mean, not to keep beating a horse, dead horse here, but you know, what do you get? Debbie Reynolds, Gene Kelly, and, <laughs> and Donald O'Connor mad, like dancing in absolute perfect sync and stuff that would have you and me dead on the floor within 10 seconds of yeah. trying to move that fast. You know, there's just no living up to that. No. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. This is, um, was very disappointing to me. I mean, I guess there's, and I do like the, the classic, I like the old classic jukebox music musicals, but 
This one didn't do it for me. And like I said, I just got angry at it. I was literally angry at this film. I didn't get mad at it, but I, was I like, also wasn't crazy about it. I was it. like, even for the time, how did you not realize what big jackasses everyone was here and not choose not to deal with it at all? Just like, okay. Anyway, there's just an audio commentary with a guy named Simon Abrams, Abrams who's a big fan of this film, who calls it a neurotic musical which I guess it is. Um, apparently, Astaire was a last-minute uh, add-in here after the original leading man, Paul Draper, uh, either dropped out or was fired. Uh, anyway, yeah, so he liked it. Meh, for me. Uh, we're going to move on to a film that I've been, that's been on my bucket list for a while, and I'll admit the main reason I never saw before now, The Last Waltz, uh, is, I mean, and you think... If you just go, hey, this is a movie called The Last Waltz. It's a Martin Scorsese film. It won awards. It was very highly thought of. And that's all you tell someone. They'd be like, well, shit, I got to see it. Fucking Martin Scorsese movie that's like won awards and people love like that. Yeah, I'm definitely going to see it. You're like, well, it's a music film. Oh, okay. What is, it's by a band. The band. Okay, which band? The band. Uh-huh. <laughs> the, which, which band? The band. Well, the thing is, a lot of people, even I, growing up at an age that I should know more about the band proper, I, mean, I couldn't have told you the names of a single person in the band, um, but they were one of the most highly influential sort of like Southern rock tinged with other stuff bands, uh, like very early than that you can imagine. Like they influenced almost everybody, um, even some of the people you would think it would be the other way around, but they were around pretty early. Uh and the thing is, is that if you can deal with a, you know, a documentary that's going to be mainly just big musical numbers, <laughs> you know, a concert film yeah. uh, for something you probably will recognize and be, oh, that's by the band? Like three or four of the songs in here at, at minimal. You're like, if you ever listen to classic rock radio on any level, you'll be like, oh, shit, I didn't know that was by this band called The Band. <laughs> what a boring name for a band. Anyway, uh but the rest of it, you know, they do there's a lot of covers in here. And I think part of it that makes this made this so entertaining for me. And I found this really deeply good. I mean, it's been upgraded to 4K by Criterion. And uh, outside of the members of the band, you've just got this guest list of other people who show up to do stuff with them, like Bob Dylan and Eric Clapton, Neil Diamond, John, Dr. John, Joni Mitchell, Van Morrison, Ringo Starr, Muddy Waters, Ronnie Wood, Neil Young, and more. And I like that it has this sort of like, I know there's a sort of like gritty feel from the scenes where Scorsese is actually just clearly kind of just putting this together. Like apparently some of the bonus features here go into he really wasn't that familiar with the band before he got sort of sort of blackmailed into doing this in a way. You're like, you can't do this unless you do this. But like, as he started getting into it, he got really into it. And you kind of watch his progression to some level of like liking these guys more and more. Uh, as for, he does personally all the backstage interviews with where he's on camera, which is rare for the, that sort of film. Um, I don't know, man. I, I just thought this was really super neato. Uh, I, it's an amazing performance by this band, just really hot. And even though there's apparently, you know, cause back then there was no digital film. You had to change out reels and shit like that. Yeah. And they apparently were just like, they'd run out of stock at one camera or whatever. They're like, fuck, we, they, we weren't able to get that. So there are sequences that, that in it where you'll be like, why is the background totally different? And it's because they went, they called them all back in a few weeks later after the supposed last show by the band said, we need you to do that again <laughs> and shoot those scenes, which, you know, you won't even think about it as you're watching it. Yeah. 
Uh oh. Uh oh. Yep. Uh, I, you know, I, uh, this is a lot of this is contingent on how much you enjoy the music, and sure. it's just this was a uh, it was it was not not not, not your type of thing. What kind of music does John Golson like to listen to? Not the band, and not um, the band. Okay, fair enough. Yeah, I have I have a lot of I have a lot of variety and taste, and even <laughs> the guest list are like some of my least favorite acts of the period of all time. So there's pe- um, people like love their music. They turned out to be a real piece of shit. <laughs> uh, this, well, I mean, not even that, but like it. This was not for me. This was not a movie for me. I'm sorry. I could appreciate it. I know that the dialogue over the years has always been, "What's the better concert film, The Last Dance or uh, or Stop Making Sense?" Or the Last Waltz. The Last Waltz or Stop Making Sense. You're gonna um, go with Stop Making Sense now. Yeah, Stop Making Sense is like <laughs> way, way, way better. Well, the other thing too is Stop Making Sense. I mean, not to not to compare, just musically, I like Talking Heads more, mm-hmm. but I like the structure of Stop Making Sense as it builds as well, like how it starts off with nobody on, like basically nobody on stage, and they keep adding members. Yeah. as the songs progress. Yeah. Um, that's interesting. Um, this is interesting. I liked the little asides of just hangout moments. I liked those a lot. Um, but yeah, this is really contingent on how much you actually enjoy the music mm. and I, I really like the music. So, you know, it was fine. It was, it was a, it was not for me, like literally not for me. Uh, and it didn't, it wasn't even a case like the, uh, who's Harry Nilsson doc where right. after I got done watching it, like immediately went and downloaded like uh, a bunch of music. That's a like, great music documentary yeah, for the It was like for this one was just like, yeah, this is not my Southern rock is not really my thing it's just not i'm sorry to say <laughs> but it doesn't but i'm not sitting here saying it's like crappy or anything like that it's right. just just not your it's thing just not my that's thing. fine it's that's not fine. my thing so the night john drove the last waltz down yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and all the rednecks were singing <laughs> it's a good package and i know a lot of people love the movie so yeah. you know it's it, my it's first just... time seeing it i i was like kind of nervous about it because i'm like I do like Southern rock an awful lot. I mean, I grew up in Virginia. What are you going to do? I mean, it was everywhere and it was like a lot better than like some of the other shit that was optional, like, you know, Hank Williams Jr. and, and, uh, fucking Molly Hatchet and shit like that. I was like, Oh, no, thanks. I'll take credence. <laughs> my <laughs> but- mom was really young in the seventies. And so even though I was born in the seventies, my mom's tastes were, were new wave and punk. Mm-hmm. And so Southern rock just wasn't on the menu, even as like, a little bitty kid. Right. You know, and then into the 80s. Like, it just wasn't. And I didn't really hear a lot of Southern rock, honestly, until probably I was, like, late high school or out of high school. So it didn't really... Yeah. It wasn't one of those things. And, you know, I, I can say my mom's musical taste probably did influence me because I would sure. rather listen to, like, New Wave or something like no, that. No, totally. I mean, again, it's hard to shit on anybody for their musical taste unless, you know... Or your parents' musical taste. Oh, I didn't get any of my taste from my parents. Okay. They, they were my dad listened to exclusively big band music and opera. Oh, That's wow. it. That's it. Wow. And then my mom liked the really corny crooners, you yeah. know. And I don't mean the good ones. <laughs> like not like Frank Sinatra or something, you know. Yeah. Uh, some of the I don't know, like a big Mel Torme fan. Probably the best thing she, she, the only thing I got from her, she really liked listening to music, uh, you know, Broadway musical soundtracks. And I, I love Broadway musicals. I love theater soundtracks. I was like, okay, I do love that stuff. But, you know, I mean, she was, there's stuff that, whereas I can respect it, I never could get into it. Like Joni Mitchell, she really liked a lot and Carol King and people like that. I'm like, "Mm, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, She thought the Beatles were too hard. See, that stuff just just missed me. I was like, my formative years were like, you know, it was all Devo and like Pat Bennett. But I had seven older brothers and sisters, none of which were hip enough to be into the cool punk stuff, you know, and new wave stuff. I think they would like hand me down records, but it'd be like, it'd be like Southern rock, but there'd be like good stuff. There'd be like the Beatles and there'd be like some like... You know, some stuff like from that time that was really cool would be like hot down somewhere in the city, you know, yeah. shit like that. It was like, oh, this is great. Like classic singles. Um, but there's nothing new wavy by any stretch of the imagination. You know, I had to discover that because of drama class. Like, <laughs> <laughs> what the fuck is this? It's called the Violent Femmes, man. Look into it. They're good. Anyway. Um, yeah. The, as, as you know, it comes down to, I guess, ultimately whether or not you can stomach the music, but the blue cake, blue, the 4K comes with two commentaries. One is a vintage one with Martin Scorsese, uh, leader of the band, Robbie Robertson, uh, and talks about the, the goals of the project, like how they talked about doing this together. Commentary two is another vintage fe- featuring all the rest of the members of the band, the crew, some fans. Good Lord, bring fans in even. Uh, the Blu-ray disc comes with both of those. And then there's a new program with Scorsese talking about the band and their sound, which was actually really interesting. And it's sort of like where I got the whole, like, oh, I, I assumed he was just a big fan, but he was like, no, I really didn't know anything about him before I took on the project. Uh, and it's a shot with him being interviewed by Rolling Stone senior editor, David, David Fear. Man, I wish my last name was Fear. That's fucking awesome. Christopher Fear. No one would mess with me if my last name was Fear. I'm going to change my name. Martin Scorsese and Robert Robertson in 1978 archival interview, uh, revisiting the last waltz, another archival program looks at the genesis of it. Um, archival outtake jam session two, which is basically if you want more, here's more that wasn't in the final cut of them just jamming. But yeah, you know. I was good. Huh? I was good. Yeah, you're was all good. No. All good on the band. Thank you. Fair, fair enough. Well, we're going to move on to, and this, uh, let me just say, this is the, one of the weirdest stacks I've ever given one of my digital noise critics. It's all over the place in types of film. <laughs> and most of them, like, far outliers, like, very weird, niche, like, different niches that you don't see a lot of people covering as much. And not, mo- I'm not going to say not all of it's bad or anything, but... There's nothing I'm in love with in this whole set, you know, nothing. I'm like, oh, yeah. And this next one we're going to talk about to sleep as to dream as to dream. I really want to like it more than I do, because I really like what they're trying to do in this weird fucking Japanese movie. And it is a weird movie. Uh I, when did this come out? 1986. Arrow is putting this thing out and it's in black and white. And it's. It's like a comedy with two sort of bumbling detectives being assigned a case like in a film noir, sort of like almost with a sort of uh, dead men don't wear plaid feel, you know, without the clips being thrown in. But then it's also got the sort of meta film characters from film crossing over to real life thing from something like Purple Rose of Cairo as they search for this woman who has disappeared and are left by, I guess, whoever kidnapped him, a series of clues that they must uncover that are really weird and abstract that they must solve in a sort of Dirk Gently holistic detective agency sort of way. I mean, everything about this is like, I should like this a lot more. And I just was kind of tolerating it the whole time. I think, I think it's home. I think it's, uh, I think it's a matter of watching it at home. I bet you anything that my experience with this movie would be completely different 
if I were trapped with it. And it was like on a big, huge screen and I was in a movie theater. Hmm. And there's certain movies that just play better on the big screen. And I realize that for a lot of people that means, oh, big special effects or big vistas or whatever. But sometimes it's a matter of just like, it has to dominate your field of vision and trap you there so that you cannot do anything else. Because this is a film that it's very easy to let yourself get distracted. Oh, yeah. It's very difficult film to watch at home. Maybe I'm just speaking for myself. No, I it's, agree. It's a very dreamlike silent film. And that's a tough watch when you got a phone in your hand. Yeah, I didn't even um, mention it was a silent film. Yeah. yeah which also is like, yeah. yeah, when you have a phone near you. I'm like, <laughs> if the phone is locked in a safe in the other room, you'll still be like... What is that combination? <laughs> uh, and I think that this would play completely different, again, at a, at a festival, at a retro screening, at something where it's you and the movie and you have no choice but to ingest the movie. It's a lot harder. It's not a movie for an uh, ADHD brain. No. Um, it's very artful. It is, uh, it, it's absurdist. It's like funny, but not really like a comedy comedy. Not ha-ha funny. Yeah. But, uh... um, and it's worthwhile. Um, but, uh, dang, if it's not a challenge to watch, <laughs> yes. like it really is. And, and that's just, I mean, again, I don't know if I'm speaking for myself, like maybe I'm the one with the problem, but I was like, I know I, I, it was, it was good enough to make me go. I know I would like this if I could just focus, freaking pay attention yeah. to it. Yeah. If I was in, you're right. If you were in a theater, you saw it at yeah. a festival, you'd probably be like, oh, that was really neat. But. Yeah, like, it's just, you keep wanting, I, I think I paused it like 40 times to get up and do something else. I was like, and it's not even a long movie. No. You know, I, I, there are points it would win me back where I'd be like, oh, that actually is, that's a neat, what is going on with that? Like the whole egg thing, you're just like, there's a deal, like these guys just eat eggs like constantly. Like, and why? I, I don't know. I don't know, but it's a funny little weird gag. Like, once again, not funny, haha, but funny, like, what is that anyway? Yeah. I I don't know, man. This is like, it's fascinating, but only under the right circumstances. <laughs> uh, there's a commentary by the director and actor Shiro Sano, a commentary by Tom Mess and Jasper Sharp, which are an analysts of Japanese cinema. How many eggs? Uh, with the star of the film, Shiro Sano, talking about it. Talking Silence, Ben Benshi Midori Sawato talks, which is talks about the tradition of the Benshi, which I guess is the sort of puppeteering thing here. That they're doing the shadow puppet thing, I think. I'm not entirely sure. Uh, Midori Sawato performs the Eternal Mystery, which is an example of Benshiing, um, uh, as Sawato provides narration for the final reel of the Eternal Mystery. The restoration of To Sleep Us to Dream. Who watches those? Seriously. <laughs> like, really? Only people who professionally restore films, but that's what that is. And then fragments from Japan's Lost Silent Heyday, which is a selection of scenes from the silent Jade Geki films from the archives of the Kyoto Toy Museum. Uh, of course, it's got the insert booklet and all that. But yeah, this is I, I'm going to know people who are going to think this is the most fascinating thing they've seen in forever. Like, mm -hmm. I mean, I'm not going to say that I, I would I would be hard pressed to argue with them, but I can't say I completely understood. I mean, I understand what it was trying to do. I just didn't understand everything that happened. It's like it almost has sort of a Lynchian like dreamlike quality to it. You know? Yeah, I can agree with that. Uh, we're going to move over to China with one of the more famous films in the wuxia uh, period of the 60s, especially those directed by sort of the guy, undisputed king of the wuxia films, King Hu, 
was his name, the director, uh, Come Drink With Me. And Arrow is putting this out as well. This is 1966. Uh, it stars Cheng Pei Pei, who you know, uh, you, you definitely know. Because she played Jade Fox in Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon decades later, who was sort of like the the villain, sort of. There's no real straight villain, but she was about as close to a villain as you get in that movie. Um, the older woman, if you remember, I don't know how long it's been since you saw Crouching Tiger. He's making the face like, no, move on, move like on. Never. Oh, you've never seen Crouching Tiger? I've never seen Crouching Tiger. <sighs> it's a flat out masterpiece. I'm just saying. Okay. <laughs> I know he's I like whatever, which is not for everybody. Anyway, uh, this was actually Hong Kong's entry for the best foreign language film at the 39th Academy Awards, but it was not nominated. Uh, the story is about this general's son who's taken hostage and used uh, by a group of bandits who want to use him to basically trade hostages for their leader who's been captured. But his daughter, uh, Golden Swallow, is sent to rescue the son, which is the aforementioned actress. Um, basically, she's a, she's a total badass and, and she can kick at anybody's ass who comes at her, but she keeps being... Uh, followed around by this drunk beggar named Fan De Da Pei, who is sort of like secretly guardian angeling her also when people are trying to ambush her at night. Uh, and then it turns out, of course, he's actually somebody for real. Like he's, he's connected to all this. Um, she gets injured and he takes her in and takes care of her. Of course, he's like a super martial arts master, what have you. And ultimately it comes down to, wait, this story has very little to do with the character we spent the first 20 minutes of it with. It actually is about this beggar and his relationship with the main villain of the film, which even the main villain of the film is only sort of there, you know, in a tertiary way to the whole main plot. Like he's like the guy running a monastery and quote, evil abbot, where the bandits are staying, but he's not really in charge of the bandits either. He's just kind of like, yeah, I mean, they paid their rent. I got to protect them. It kind of feels more like that. But like the guy, the, 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 the hobo who's been protecting Golden Swallow is, is like his, a former uh, student at the same school as him. And there's like, oh, one, you killed the master, that type of thing. Anyway, it, these things get kind of convoluted, but I mean, this one's okay. I was kind of surprised that this was, as highly thought of as it was, um, maybe that I've been watching so many more lately of the post Wishif period Shaw Brothers films where it's like, oh, there's a lot more just, you know, less sword play, more people doing like, you know, not wire work, straight up fighting, you know, which I prefer. And the fighting's a little sloppy here as they, as they tended to be in those days before like the Chinese boxer and stuff was like dominating things yeah. and, and the just straight fighting came more into it. Um, I, I still, I think it's very colorful. It's very, it's very beautiful looking at points. And I think some of the wire work here is some of the best of the period. But I am not a big fan of Wuxia films until they came back again in the eighties when in the sort of like in the, the golden age of, of Chinese filmmaking, when, you know, we've already had like, you know, the, the Jackie Chan's already had a really solid run. Jet Li and Donnie Yen are starting to be really big stars and sort of like that people, they start putting out the once upon a time in China films, which were like sort of a rebirth, rebirth of the Wuxia genre. I love those things. And everything that came out after that was like, Oh, but the early stuff is a bit much. <laughs> it is a little, uh, I like the characters are kind of cartoony. Um, little, they're all just like a little bit over the top, a little comic booky. I, I mean, really to me where this film fails is in the action. Mm. I felt like it was really ramshackle and sloppy fights and sped up. Everything is like 
like all 1920 style, like speed ramped, like everything is fast motion. Yeah. So can... it's like sloppy and fast motion. It's just, there's something about the action sequences in this. I say action sequences. You know what I mean? Fight scenes. Sure. Um, that was just a little too ramshackle. Uh, but I did like the characters. I thought, I thought this one was okay. Um, if I, if I didn't like the characters so much, uh, it, it would be a pass. Cause I don't think you could, I don't think you could tell somebody like, Oh, the action's really badass. The fighting's really badass. So it's like, if you have a, an affinity for sort of like cartoony heroes and villains, then, um, yeah, then this is, you know, in that direction. Yes, uh, I was just reading this, and I don't know if this is true or not because it's on Wikipedia, but uh, it says that apparently in 2007, the, the Weinsteins announced that um, uh, they were investing in movies with Asian themes, and one of the first films they were going to put out was a remake of this directed by Quentin Tarantino. But, you know, that never came to be. So, nope. But that's that's interesting. I, I, I Maybe the, I don't. When did Kill Bill come out? Oh, gosh. What, 2000? Did. 2001 or two okay so well right? well before that probably probably yeah, yeah because in 2008 he was like uh i'm my next project is inglorious bastards so i assume it came out before that yeah. yeah uh yeah there's a commentary by critic for a lot of these arrow things tony rains uh interview with chang pei pei in, uh, from 2003 interview with ua ha actor uh from 2007 interview with actor cheng hung lee from 2003, there's Talk Story with Cheng Pei Pei, which is a 2016 Q&A that was recorded in Hawaii. Uh, Cinema Hong Kong Sword Fighting. This is the one reason to, to get this one, for sure. That when they have these ser Arrows series on, like, the history of, of Chinese martial arts films have all been terrific. And this one is uh, no exception. This is the second in a three-part documentary in the Shaw Brothers. I believe the first one was the one that came with Shaw Scope. Uh, but this is the second part that focuses on sort of the wuxia and sword fighting period. And you just learn a shit ton of stuff about how this all fits into the puzzle of like the history of Chinese film that has interviews with like Jackie Chan, Jet Li, John Woo, Sammo Hung, Gordon Lowe and others. So, uh, yeah, that, that, I mean, if you get a chance to watch borrow somebody else's, even if you're not in it for the movie, do it just to watch that because it is really informative and mm. interesting. I would have watched that. <laughs> Sorry. In its entirety. Now that sounds really, that does sound really cool. That yeah. At some really point when they put out all three, I can just loan you like all the discs from those. And then you can just like watch all three. Cause like I've like in the Shaw scope set as well. That was like one of the best features. I'm like, wow, there's a, I mean, I always love this stuff, but I have a hard time piecing together the order of it all. Like how did this happen? And when did what happen? And why did it happen? You know, cause we don't, you know, the Chinese film industry was not exactly like hand in hand with the American film industry. It wasn't until like sort of Bruce Lee that there started to be more crossover. But even then, you know, anyway, our next film is another one of those films that uh, are doing the Groundhog's Day bit, or I should say maybe more of a Happy Death Day bit more accurately here. It's interesting because Russian Doll season two just took that exact same tact as uh, uh, or took that tack for their first season. Sorry, Russian Doll season one. And this movie 645 is also playing with the whole, okay, live, die, repeat, like do it again and try and figure out the puzzle of why are you doing this? Okay. I've liked more of this stuff than I haven't. And I saw 
some good reviews for this. And with horror, you can always expect that you're never going to, you're almost never going to find like a 97% on Rotten Tomatoes. It's always like, you know, usually it's, it's probably at least worth giving a try and you might love it if it's like 57% or above. Right. <laughs> you know, some people just are not going to like horror or sci fi no matter what you do. Yeah. Uh, and the story here follows Michael Reed as Bobby. He's gone to this bed and breakfast with his girlfriend, Jules, uh, played by Augie Duke. And they're sort of like trying to reconnect for this romantic vacation. It's like a ferry ride they have to take out to this island to get out there. But right off the bat, they're like, this is weird out here. Like, this is a weird place. Like, even though, like, the proprietor of the bed and breakfast is just a weird dude. Um and like what the and they're like why is it so slow here like oh well it's the off season and literally y'all are like the only tourists here there's a couple townies that's about it so uh and also you can't leave the island uh <laughs> either cuz it's the ferry's close for the weekend so they okay we'll make the best of it but then this guy comes along in a hood slashes her throat and then kills him and then he wakes up you know not to sunny and chair I forget what the there is a song. I forget what it is. Oh gosh, yeah, I can't even remember. Yeah, um, and it's like, wait, what did that happen? And has to you know, slowly figure out what 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 is the what's the deal with the pattern here? Like, no matter what he does or where he goes, the killer finds them, kills her, but the same way every time he kills her and then kills him in a number of different ways. Um, and you know, this is much going, it's going the way a lot of these do. He said, well, there's an, there's some moral issue I need to solve. The difference is this is wants to take an even darker tone and be more, I don't know, chasing maybe a little bit of Donnie Darko's themes. And when it gets into the third act, but it doesn't work at all. And at the end, I was like, well, almost everything in the third act just doesn't follow. I went, what? Okay, I guess. And uh, by the end, I was like, well, that was incredibly dissatisfying way to end a movie. <laughs> yeah, it's got a real, um, it's got a real, uh, kind of a, what, what is it, John? I was going to say, you know, I don't think it's fair for me to say that it has an ugly streak towards women because I don't think that it particularly likes its male characters either. I don't think it likes anybody. Um, it, yeah, this was also a challenging movie. Uh, <laughs> I'm so to, sorry to for enjoy. this stat. <laughs> um, apparently, like this, and I, in reading up on it, this movie was like uh, distributed in part by Regal, the theater chain. Like they made it available to people who are part of like the Regal mm-hmm. movie club thing. Is like, oh, we've got an exclusive movie you can use your movie pass for. Right. And there's all these reviews. <laughs> there's all these reviews online from people that like just. People that have the regal pass, like, like your aunts and uncles, basically, <laughs> that were like, we're going to go use our pass to see this new 645 thing. <laughs> and, um, yeah, a lot of people don't like this movie. Um, no, I'm, I'm in there with them. Uh, yeah, but, but my deal is that it was, uh, kind of, there's a lot of conversations and dialogue and stuff that happens and it happens over and over and over that's, um, not, particularly good i think the best thing that this movie has going for it is a really really interesting location it's a great place to shoot i believe it's some beach town off the coast of jersey um that was like a methodist settlement so there's like a gigantic church Mm. uh there on the coast 
but the town itself doesn't look like anything I've ever seen on film. Like where they are doesn't look like anywhere I've ever seen. It's really, really cool. That's the best thing that this movie has going for it. Other than that, it's 90 minutes of a repeated day with unlikable characters saying unlikable things to each other while one of them gets killed over and over and over and over and over and over. They don't do a good job of that thing that other movies that do the repeating days do where they'll extend a day for a really long time and then maybe do one day that's like really, really short. Right. right. Instead, it's like, all the days get kind of equidistant. It's just um, kind of almost timing. the whole film is almost a montage of the days, yeah. like the all the other fil- time yeah. loop films that are like, like you said, have one maybe two long days, and then a series of sort of like, okay, that's on one of the days. Because I think yeah. those other movies are structured in a way where it's like, oh, we still have a five act structure to obligate, so we're going to have our opening be longer, and the escalation doesn't have to be as long, and then up at the top of the climax, we can make that longer, and the de-escalation can be shorter. So I think they measure those things differently, whereas this movie's just like, well, we've got this one idea, and we 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 know what the ending is, so we're going to write backwards from the ending. And so structurally, it's like everything is built around where this goes. Yeah. And then, so from, there is no story from point A to point B. There's just a point A, and there's just a point B. And there's nothing in between that you would describe as rising action, falling action, climax. Yeah. There's just the same day over and over just, and over until they decide, until the film decides, all right, now we're going to give our reveal. Yeah. And that's no way to tell a and story. And then the reveal is just kind of exhausting. You're like, I sat through all that for oh, that. Oh, man. <laughs> that, that, yeah, that's literally like, you get to it, it just makes you mad. Because yeah. you are like, I cannot believe I watched this whole thing. And that is, that's the worst feeling you want to give an audience is like, you made me sit through all that horse shit for that. <laughs> like, are you kidding me? Yeah. It's a was, real good way to just set some goodwill on fire. This is one of, oh, let's see. I'm going to say three, maybe four films in the set that actively made me mad. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I did not care for 645 at all. It's, a, it's one of my, I'd say anti-pick of the week, but there's so many nominees this mm. week. Uh, but we're going to move on to another one that is as well one of my nominees, which is Invincible. And no, <laughs> this is not the, the fantastic Amazon Prime animated superhero, super dark show, uh-huh. which is great. Now, okay, I admit, I picked this up because I like Marco Zoror. It's like the, the Latin, like martial arts badass. He's, we've hung out with him any number of times at Fantastic Fest. He's like one of the sweetest, coolest guys for this giant, huge, hulking dude who can't even put his arms down because he's got so many muscles. You know, like, I want to see Marco Zoror make it. Like he appears in shit all the time, usually as flunky number four <laughs> in some big American film or something, you know, or on a TV series. Like, look, it's Marco Zoror. Oh, wait, he's dead. Like he actually is a really genuinely good martial artist. So I was like, <sighs> Okay, fine. Send me the DVD only of Invincible. We'll check it out. And this also casts another guy in here, Johnny Strong, who is really the star. Apparently, he had a, a promising start with being in uh, The Fast and the Furious and in Black Hawk Down. He was in the 2010 flick Sinners and Saints that apparently was considered to be pretty impressive a performance in there. I mean, it was a DTV film, but still, like... M- Fans of these type of films really liked it. Uh, and then he just kind of disappeared. Like he didn't really do a heck of a lot. He was in, um, 
Daylight's End, if you ever saw that, a, a zombie action film in 2016. But yeah, he just was in almost nothing notable. So, but they bring him back. Apparently, partially he agreed to be on it because he got to put his own personal music on the soundtrack. <laughs> yeah, he did. <laughs> Which is not terrific. Yeah, he did. Uh, and he's also one of the co-writers, if you want to put the word writing attached to this film. Like, I've watched a lot of, like, you know... Z, like Z grade action films with stars are like, Oh, they're genuinely a good martial artist, but this movie is pretty bad. And this is one of the worst ones I've seen, quite frankly, just especially in terms of the writing and the performing. Wow. So what? I wrote this down. This is why I was on my phone. Here's, here's a scene of dialogue. This is like two, two people talking. You're the hero, right? I'm not the hero. So go be the hero. I'm not your fucking hero and I'm not your soldier anymore. You're right, but you're the only one who can stop this thing right now. What I'm thinking <laughs> about how I'm going to kick your ass when this is all over. And it's I was like, all shit like that. Yeah. It's just like weird pauses and weird cadence. Like that, that exchange is so weird. No one talks like that. No. It's so bizarre. And the whole movie is, is not only is the dialogue like that. But it's all ADR, yeah. obvious ADR, oh, and obvious. It, the movie has such a bizarre, like, uncanny valley feel to it, where it's like, this whole thing is off. Like, like, like the sound doesn't match, and the but even then, the things they're saying is weird. This is and like, like a movie you watch in a dream that yeah. you realize you're dreaming because it's so janky. <laughs> it's like droning, <laughs> this droning electronic music that runs from, like, beginning to end, this, like, slow like pulsing hypnotic electronic music that's not like it's not particularly good no. just supporting bad dialogue said with bad ADR in a movie that really is kind of like early 90s image comics wannabe stuff where it's yeah. like oh the government is turning people into super soldiers <laughs> yes, yes it's like blowing the dust off of some comic that somebody found in like a 50 cent bin we got to be careful that we don't do too much to rip off Universal Soldier, but let's be clear, we're ripping off Universal yeah. Soldier here. Did you see the movie Bloodshot and go, man, I wish this was worse? Well, we have a movie for you. <laughs> well, it is indeed worse than Bloodshot. That's the highest praise I've given Bloodshot so far. Uh, yeah, Strong is like a bodyguard for a British millionaire inventor who apparently has developed cybernetic limbs, you know, you know, to help out vets. Okay, sure. Uh, and uh, it turns out they've been working with, like, bad people to use so this for bad stuff. Um, Marco Zoror is the leader of some military outfit in Thailand for reasons. And his whole troop gets killed and he gets, quote, killed. But he's brought back and they do the thing which has something to do with nano bits. I mean, he thought he was going to get cool cyber arms or some shit. But no, he just has nano bits running through his system. So yeah. if he gets shot or something, it just heals up, which you don't even really see except once. So Because that's how cheap this film is. It just doesn't <laughs> use it at all. And of course, eventually... the you know, he he wakes up and has gone crazy and is just out killing people for reasons. Mm -hmm. And the, eventually, of course, the hero gets killed, quote, they do the same thing to him. And so then it's super soldier, super soldier, neither which of one which has any particular special new abilities other than like they're going to fight for a long fucking time because neither can die. And Jesus, when will this be over? <laughs> <laughs> it's never over. It's a uh, it's a weird one. It's a weird one, and I will give it that. I think that it is out of these kind of things. I've seen quote unquote better movies with higher production values. Um, 
you know, some of these Dolph Lundgren ones that are made in like the Eastern Bloc nations. Like, yeah, I've seen some of those that are slicker and tighter that aren't as intriguingly weird and as off-putting as this one is. That's not a recommendation. No. Exactly. I don't know what I'm trying to say. It's sort of like, I was never bored by it because it was so (laughs) weird. It was like, weird's the wrong word. What am I looking for? It was so off-kilter enough for me to, like, I looked at it with my head cocked to the side (laughs) the entire time. It's weird in its incompetence. (laughs) Where, like, there's so much stuff, I'm like, but wait, <laughs> this is not this guy's first film even, you know? I'm like, how is this? Well, it, uh, it feels like a student project, Very you know? Odd. Very I, odd. I don't know how this movie got made, but I mean, it's Thailand. I mean, there's a, I think there's a whole pocket industry in Thailand of just getting a few white people over there who like are minorly known from DTV films like the cast here, you know, and Going, okay, well, now you get to kill lots and lots of Thai people that we'll pay them, you know, like cheap days wages for on there. And we can do everything super cheap over here. And and then we can shit out whatever. <laughs> you think you could go and make a much better looking but film. But then doesn't it kind of have the feel, the, like you say all that, but then at the same time, can't you kind of feel him behind the typewriter like... This is it. This is the one. I don't know. I hope not. <laughs> so now I'm picturing Stephen J. Canal's yeah. Invincible. <laughs> All right. So move that's, on. That's my pick of the week. Uh, you shush you. Uh, we'll move on to a 1973 Swedish rape and revenge exploitation film. I know you're like, ooh, what is that going to be? Called Thriller, A Cruel Picture. And it is definitely that. It is also a triple X feature, which I was not expecting and completely took me by surprise and not a happy way. As so I was like, wait, what? <laughs> it's like, let's watch. Like, Why is everything so brown? <laughs> like, you, know what's, you know what's great about rape and revenge films is when they actually show triple X version of the rape. <laughs> no, it's not. Nobody wants that. Uh, Christina Lindbergh here, who was a uh, Swedish journalist, who is uh, known, was really well known for some of her acting and uh, glamour work in the 60s and 70s. She plays a mute woman who's forced into being a junkie and a prostitute. Uh, she's sexually assaulted as a child. Um, she gets a, takes a ride from the sky who does all this stuff to her, becomes her pimp. Uh, and then she, at one point she gets stabbed in the eye and so she has an eye patch. So that just sets up to make her look like a badass when she decides she's going to manipulate a huge revenge to kill anyone who ever slept with her by wearing a trench coat, badass hat, shotgun under the trench coat, <laughs> you know, I like, and I admit she does indeed look badass when it gets to the revenge part. I'm like, okay. Yeah. I was really pushing to get through the fucking first two, like half of this film. Cause like, it says this is a rape and revenge film. When is the revenge? coming because i feel nauseous when it finally gets the revenge i'm like okay for a 70s revenge film this isn't this isn't awful i can see why this movie has a cult following and it does in fact have a cult following uh it's not for me let's just say i yeah i'm certain it's not for john yeah um and yeah i mean this is it was banned like all over the place but i mean tv guide rated this three out of four stars you can see my living room television from outside if you're at my apartment complex. Mm-hmm. And so I fired this up on a Saturday morning. Oh, boy. I got to the sex and was like, I, I'm going to turn this off because I because people can see what I'm watching. Yeah. 
Um, and then I actually forgotten about it. You know, I told you that like, oh, hey, I'm done. And then today I had to finish it because I was like, oh, I'm not done. I went to grab the stack and I was like, I'd never finished Thriller. So I had to go back and watch it. Um, I, yeah, it's not for me. No, <laughs> it's just not for me. She's uh, it's a it's a girl who's sex trafficked and then kills everyone in slow motion with blood that looks oddly in the 70s. I'm used to blood not looking like real blood. Mm -hmm. Typically, it looks like house paint. Yeah. The blood in this, for some reason, looks just like tomato sauce. <laughs> like it looks exactly like marinara. It probably so it's like was. shooting everyone in slow motion as marinara bursts from their chest. Yeah, it's literally chunky and has bits and, of black olives like, and mushrooms. Yeah, it has like it. weird. It has like a weird kind of a yellowish color that marinara has on clothing. Yeah. So like when marinara soaks clothing. It's not just blood red. It's kind of like brownish yellow yeah. if it's wet with tomato sauce. <laughs> and everyone was everyone was covered in tomato sauce. <laughs> um, this sucked. Uh, I went online and checked Letterboxd to see what people thought about it. And I have <coughs> dozens and dozens of friends who've watched this movie. Really? And given it four and a half and five stars. Oh, see, see, this like, does look like the film. We both know lots of people who work in horror and what have you who like... I don't know what happened to their brains over time with some of them because you're like some of the stuff they champion. I'm like, dude, I think you watch. I think you just are non-discriminatory to what you watch. And when something's not anywhere near as the worst shit that you submit yourself to, you're like, this is great. Well, so a lot of people, too, had seen it at some draft house screening where she was there. Okay. And I'm sure that enhances the experience in some uh, I way. I guess. I mean, I've been but plenty of screenings. just taken on its own as a movie. The thing I liked most about it was that she accessorized her eye patch with what she was wearing. Yeah. So she had, like, red boots on. She had a red eye patch. or like It was you know. focusing on the style um, aspects of it, no question. But it's, it's super sleazy exploitation with hardcore sex. Now, there is another disc that has the sex removed. They call, yeah. they call her One Eye, which is a title... Which is the title I, of this movie I was more familiar with mm -hmm. than Thriller, A Cruel Picture. Apparently an inspiration for the, the Daryl Hannah character. In, yeah, in, uh, Quentin Tarantino d d directly credits this film yeah. for that. Um, but it was trashy. I, yeah. I thought it was trashy. And it wasn't trashy like like an Abel Ferrara movie where no. it's like it's trashy and artful. I actually didn't find this very artful. I thought it was just kind of like sleazy exploitation vibes with penetration cutaways. and. Yeah. And not not even particularly like put together very well. Like it's not like again the de the her revenge stuff. Everybody kind of dies the same way. Um, there's a lot of like repetitive scenes of her like walking in a room and being undressed by whoever's about to like exploit her. Um, it was it was it was bad and it made me feel bad. I, no, I mean I get that. I, I felt the same through almost all of it. Once it got to the revenge, I'm like, okay, now I'm at least getting the stuff that I, I prefer more. And it's shot better when it gets to that. You're like, then What's he starts too, messing like, with fashion and style. Then before you, you're like, this is like feels like you're watching a '70s porn film. You and I aren't even like moralists. No, do you know what I'm saying? Like, uh, that's the I'm funny thing point, too. Is just like, like when you're doing stuff like this though, that's just sort of like when you glory and and like sort of like really really fucked up rape scenes like i i you know i don't care when you made it it's kind of messed up and i've seen plenty of rape and revenge films where i'm like i don't mind this because like they at least know how to do this because everything know? is made to titillate because yeah. both the rape and the revenge are made to titillate, titillate yeah it's like, that's what it, they it, they equal the, yeah. it's equal even when you watch something like uh, uh 
I spit on your grave. They're definitely not trying to titillate with the rape scene. It's mm. supposed to be horrifying and it is horrifying. You know, so you're really rooting for these dudes to get their comeuppance by this girl. This is not uh, here. It's not that. If you want to watch something like this, that's so much better. Arrow put out like female uh, prisoner scorpion series. Those are actually pretty damn good. And that's sort of like a exploitation rape revenge series. And those are really stylish and cool. There's a whole series of them. They're actually well worth seeing. This was just, I don't understand other than people going, oh, well, Tarantino likes it, so I must, I, I guess I have to like it too. I, I don't know. Is that what way people with brains wanna, work? I don't want to say that, I don't want to say that all of the, my five star friends no, are, I know. are wrong or that they have ulterior motives, but man, I just did not watch the same movie they did. I did not yeah. see it at all. And like, the, uh, to me, I thought you were about to mention Miss 45. Oh, Miss 45, um, also one where you great have a, choice. A mute, a- Abel uh, Ferrar. Rape Revenge yeah. movie yeah. where it's a very, I thought it was very similar in that the lead dresses in an iconic way, the lead is mute, um, but I think it's a superior film. I, yeah, this totally. is gross. And this is the, we're reviewing the Synapse version, uh, that is the Blu-ray and DVD. Apparently, uh, Vinegar Syndrome is shortly putting out a 4K version that will have a completely different oh, set yeah. of bonus features on it. Yeah, because who needs this in 4K? <laughs> Jesus Christ. Uh, and this has got, uh, here it's got like an outtake reel, uh, uh, alternate version of the fight in a harbor for like five and a half minutes. Uh, movie and Pictures, which is uh, uh, basically a, a still reel of the film start to finish. So it's just stills. I don't who. It's not even photographs that were taken on set. It's just like, well, we cut specific scenes and you're just like, if you want to watch the film this way, if you want to film, the, watch it like La Jete. Here you go. Uh, and then a bunch of still galleries. There's not a lot of extra features here overall. Um, I assume that the 4K version will probably have more. So I've read it's totally different ones. I don't know. I don't care. I'm never going to watch this movie again. Uh, let's move on to a Kino Lorber release of Zoot Suit, which uh, just came up recently in another review I was doing, but I, I can't even remember what it was. Oh, yes, uh, we were reviewing Eating Raoul, mm-hmm. and I was like, oh, uh, well, that was the second film appearance ever of actor uh, uh, Robert Beltran, who oh, yeah. played Chakotay on Voyager, right? It was where I know him from. His his uh, first appear- film appearance was actually as a very small role, but you know, see on screen in this film, Zoot Suit. Uh, obviously, eating Raul has been a bit of a step up since he was, in fact, Raul <laughs> in that movie. But this is an adaptation of a Broadway play, of, uh, a 1981 version. Both, both the play and this are written and directed by Louis Valdez, a Chicano playwright, screenwriter, film director, and actor who's largely viewed as the father of a Chicano theater in general. Uh, he did the movie La Bamba, for instance. Great, great movie. But also wanted to see this because it had uh, Edward James Olmos in one of the lead roles, a very young Edward James Olmos, which, you know, you only see here and there. Yeah. Uh, and I've always been a big fan. And then Tyne Daly, also very young Tyne Daly. Uh, I can't remember if she was Cagney or Lacey, but you know. No Lacey or no Cagney, whichever it is. Work be- joke worked better if I knew which one was which. I don't know which one she is. Yeah. Anyway, so this is apparently loosely based on the real-life events of the Sleepy Lagoon murder trial. Uh, a group of young Mexican-Americans were all charged with murder. Uh, with a case they clearly, I mean, at least in terms of the film, they did not do. It was sort of like set up, a racism involved, yada, yada. But uh, this led to the Zoot Suit riots. Riot! That happened throughout Los Angeles. Um, so these guys are like what they call pachucos. 
you know, who drew, wore these who gangsters who wore these zoot suits, which are, you know, I mean, by today's standards, absolutely ridiculous looking. But the whole point was it was sort of a and the movie this movie makes clear it was, it was a uniform or sort of a way of identifying outside of the white culture that was trying to absorb everything. You know, yeah. they're like, this is our world. This is our own thing. This is our version of style. And they go detail. It's the most interesting detailing I've ever seen on why would anyone wear this ridiculous looking thing? And you're like, well, because it wasn't ridiculous to them. It was like, to them, it was like, wow, you're a, st- a styling motherfucker. Okay. Fair enough. I've seen people wear much more. I wore much more ridiculous stuff than that when I thought I fancied myself a young punk rocker. I'm wearing more ridiculous stuff now. I got a, I got a t-shirt with a hot dog on it. <laughs> so you do. <laughs> <laughs> There's no explanation for it. Uh, so, but this, uh, you know, I thought this would be a little later. This actually takes place in the barrios of Los Angeles in the early 1940s, uh, you know, right as World War II is ramping up. And I think that, as a lot of critics said at the time when this came out, the play was considered to be a really big deal. This added the conceit, a meta conceit of the audience watching the play that serves absolutely no purpose here and is just awkward and stops the film cold every time that they use it. Uh, I'm, I'm even, you know, when I finished watching, I was like, looked it up. I was like, yes, that's what I was thinking. Why was that there? (laughs) There's stuff that's really neat. I like the whole way Edward James Olmos is sort of, he's both a real person and he's sort of like a conscience, conscience slash demon spirit guide (laughs) for the main character. Like, kind of is in almost every scene. He's like always hovering there, no matter what's going on and sort of whispering in the guy's ear, like what he should do. And sometimes his advice is dead on. And sometimes it's like, whoa, no, don't do that. Um, I think ultimately though, this just has one of those things of like, yeah, this didn't really work as a movie. I can see how this would work on stage, but mm, I like the dance sequences though a lot. Yeah, I, th- I think it's a case of sometimes you don't know that your experiment was unsuccessful until you actually execute it. Yeah. And I think the thought here is like, oh, we'll bring it, we'll bring the stage show to the big screen intact by starting the movie by having an audience drive up to a theater, get tickets, sit down in a theater, and then the play opens. And we watched a filmed, a literal filmed version of the play. Like even a lot of the sets are very black box theater yeah. where it's like sort of black background with like a minimal set dressing. Um, and it removes it from feeling cinematic, but it also keeps it, the conceit of the structure of it keeps it like two or three steps removed from audience engagement as well. Mm-hmm. It feels like it's like a click away, like you're watching it from behind a screen or something. Um, there's no vitality to it. So as, as, as energetic as it is, and it is high energy, Mm -hmm. there's still like the, the formalism of it removes you a step. Yeah. It's very strange. And it's a vital step really with the type of, cause you should feel real emotion here. You should be getting really emotionally involved in the story and you just always feel like, like you're looking at it through several panes of glass. You you can see a version of this movie that's like West Side Story, Mm -hmm. where they're actually putting it out on the streets in LA and doing all the singing and dancing in real locations. And it becomes, in in my mind's eye, that becomes something way... That becomes what I wanted to see. That becomes something that's way more vital. That becomes something that is way more engaging, seeing it in that that context. But that's that's not the movie they made. And I don't know if it's a case of someone being a young director and going, I'm not quite sure how to turn my play into a movie, so I'm going to do this thing. Or whether it was 
well, the play is already working, so I'm just going to put that on the screen. Like, I really don't know what the what caused the decision, mm-hmm. but it it really does damage the overall experience of the movie because you can tell that the source material would engage if you saw it live or would engage if you saw it in a different context, but there's... It's like somebody filming a high school performance of something and then making you watch the VHS tape. Now, the performances are better than that. Yeah. I don't want to dismiss it in that regard. But there's you're just removed from it. You yeah. Are, you are watching the audience watch it. You are not the audience. Yeah. I agree with you 100%. Well said, in fact. <laughs> you said better than I could have. Uh, I wish this was better because yeah. it's neat, but... You know, it's a, if this was like, oh, this is they're doing a big theatrical production. I would totally go. And see you can this. see the. That's what I'm saying. Like you can see the the, you can see the raw material of what would make a really good engaging movie. Yeah, yeah. Or or really good engaging stage or a really experience. Good engaging stage experience. Uh, there's audio commentary by Daniel Kremer. There's an interview with director Louis Valdez. Uh, there's and then trailers for other movies by uh, Kino Lorber. So not a lot here, but you know if. The history of Chicano theater is something that interests you. Yeah, this is a must-see in that context, no question. But I don't think it's going to do a lot for most people who, who st- might stumble across it. I don't know how they'd stumble across it. You're either specifically looking for Zoot Suit or you're not. Uh, and we're going to end with a look at literally an almost identical box set to what I reviewed about a year ago. Uh, Rick and Morty box set with all the seasons. I had the one through four and now they put out one through five, which is the same discs except, you know, five. And they originally well. did like a one and two, I think a long time ago. Uh, did they? I'm sure I they think did. there's a one yeah. and two Blu-ray. And the only real difference here, I was like, oh, there's a different fold out poster that comes in each package. Okay. Um, and so I reviewed seasons one through four. I'm not going to go into real deep depth on my part here. Uh, I will say this was my first time watching season five, which I saw a lot of people being critical of, but I don't know. I always find that people with who are animation fans are just so hyperbolic about their feelings about this stuff. Cause like I'll watch stuff that I'm like, like this was like, Oh, I thought like half the people I talked to, Oh, it's like one of the worst seasons. So bad. Like, like, but there's like only a few good episodes. I'm like, I literally just watched recently all four of the other seasons, and now I'm watching this. I'm going, this is about the same hit-to-miss ratio for me as any of the others. I mean, I really like Rick and Morty, and yeah, I get it. Some of the fans are toxic. Believe me, out there, wherever you are, something you're a huge fan of has enormously toxic fans everywhere. (laughs) Guaranteed. Whether it's Star Wars, Star Trek, superheroes, whatever thing it is, you've got some shitty fans. So does Rick and Morty. It just made the news. And because of a dipping sauce, I don't, I don't know why that was the, the the line in the sand for some people, but apparently it was. Uh, I I don't know, man. I mean, like I'll keep watching the show as long as it keeps being clever and funny, and I do think this is continuously clever and funny. I don't. I think anybody who comes out of this identifying with Rick is an idiot and a narcissist. <laughs> I can't believe there's evil. Actually, that's their worldview. But this and the show never tries to make you feel that way. I mean, he is the super, super smart guy, but whose own narcissism is what constantly gets him fucked of like his being so narcissistic about his ego and his lack of caring about other people. That's what ends up screwing him himself. If you don't see that, I don't know what to tell you. And the fifth season is no different. Um, some of the episodes that, that it goes into, I thought were just laugh out loud funny like there always is with these things and my favorite one one of my favorite ones being one where the, they the whole family is having breakfast when these 
uh, aliens come in and kill all of them, and it's immediately revealed that they're decoys as it flashes to another Rick. It's like, oh, shit, they killed the decoys. We got to hide. And the whole thing is just this show's version of Groundhog's Day, I guess, except they're just like, you never really know who the real decoys are, because every time you think it's the real one, no, they're decoys too, and then it goes to the next one. I'm like, that was really clever and funny. Uh yeah, I mean, probably the weakest is one where they're making fun of, like, the Captain Planet stuff. I was like, okay, this didn't really know where it wanted to go, and it kind of, at the end, was, like, shrugged. But other than that, I'm like, yeah, I, I laughed throughout this. This is actually the season that most gets, and at all, gets into Rick's actual backstory. We're like, wait, where did he come from? How did this get started? Uh, and you get into that. It's the return of Birdman, who's always one of my favorite supplemental characters on here. I don't know. I liked it, but I'm curious. I I don't think we've talked about. It. Did we review season one through four before? No, I've never really talked to anybody about Rick and Morty. I'm I'm a I'm medium cool on it. I like it, but I can't binge it. I think the rhythms of the show are so um, the rhythms of the show are so fast paced that to me it's a really difficult show to watch more than like two is pushing it right, and I have to like take breaks. Um, <laughs> So, uh, I'm that way with almost every animated show. Yeah. I'm like, I can take about two, maybe three, and then I'm like, okay, I'll pick this up again in a couple of days. Yeah. It gets, it's so breakneck that, like, by the time I hit a third or fourth episode, like, I, it, it starts to become like white noise. Um, I like it. I'm, 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 you know, I like it. <laughs> You're like, <laughs> I'm not I don't huge have on against it. it. Yeah. It's not my I favorite watched, thing. I watched the first two seasons. Uh, I watched a few of the th- season three episodes. Um, the, it's also a show that I don't love enough for its sporadic schedule to bring me back. Mm-hmm. So I always, for, I always never have an awareness of like when there's new episodes. Right. I didn't even know they were already on episode, I mean, season five. Right. Like, I, are, are they continuing? Is it? Yeah. He, they, I think after season four or three or four, they signed a, a deal for just in like, I think four or five more seasons. Cause but, I know there was a lot of stuff about the two of them, not Harmon and Royland, not not working well together and not oh. being on the same page hmm. that they have completely different methods of, of writing and collaborating. I mean, maybe that mesh. played into this. I, I honestly don't know, but I mean, I found it kind of on a balance with the, the other seasons. Well, um, that, I, that was the news back between season two and three when three was, when season three was taking forever. It was just a matter right. of like Royland apparently writes way, 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 way slower than, than Harmon. Harmon. It reminds me of Steve Gerber in that way. Was Steve hmm. Gerber was infamous for like, like blowing deadlines and like was a very meticulous or, slow writer. or douglas adams yeah who famously um, apparently he'd like he'd lock himself in the bathroom and his agent would like break in and be like into the house and be like where are you i'm taking a bath you can't come in and he'd just be like in there desperately trying to finish the book that wow. he's like only halfway through and it was supposed to be out like a week ago <laughs> um I, i'm i'm fine with rick and morty it has like it kind of does have like a South Park style fandom where, like the worst character on the show is the is like the be- most beloved in an odd way. Mm-hmm. It, there are certain shows where it's like characters like that are almost like I don't know what the shift is that happens, but it's like you'll see some shows like that, like Barney from How I Met Your Mother. Where he's like a beloved character, but nobody is centering their fandom necessarily around Barney. Right. Whereas like South Park and Cartman and like Rick from Rick and Morty, it's like you'll find a fan, a fandom that centers around 
the worst character of the show on purpose, like intentionally the worst character of the show. Yeah. As sort of like, I don't know, like exemplary or role models, like the wrong term. I don't know how to define it. It's sort of like, I know what you mean. Yeah. Yeah. It's sort of like, I mean, they're an anti-hero, but they're decidedly the primary <laughs> character. Like you yeah. can, there are episodes where they like hand the show over to Rick, but those are only every once in a while. You know, it's largely, I'm sorry, over to Morty, but I think but it's, a, it's I, largely a Rick centered show. I think it's a lack of awareness between that's funny period, or that's funny and they're awful. Yeah, and it's like there are people that 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 their thoughts about Rick or Cartman end with, "Oh, they're really hilarious." Period. There's no, they're really hilarious, and I would hate to know that person in real life. Right. Both of like, them are sort of based on Archie Bunker yeah. in their way. You know, yeah. I mean, I know specifically with Cartman because the the creators have said as much. Yeah. Like we wanted to make a child Archie Bunker, uh, and in fact, I believe that what's the name of the creator of Archie Bunker show? Uh, Neil. Oh. uh yeah, you know what I'm talking about, but yeah. he, he actually oh my God. came it's, in and like, gonna break my brain. he came in and co-wrote a couple seasons of South Park with them, actually, interestingly enough. But Lear. Yeah. Norman, Norman Lear. Lear. God. One of the great, Sorry. time greats from TV, Took but you wouldn't watch Archie Bunker. Nobody watched Archie Bunker was decidedly the main character on that show, but nobody would go, well, you're supposed to like idealize him because of that. But no, even the was, fandom on that show, even the fandom on that show, it became like, Oh, Archie Bunker dolls. And what if he right. ran his own bar? And what if he had a cute and cuddly kid? And even right. that show, the fandom changed where it wasn't like he's funny and he's awful. It was just simply he's funny. Well, yeah, they changed the whole tone of the show after that because you're like, okay, well, now his wife has died and he's learned all these lessons from Archie Bunker show. And now he yeah. has, he owns a bar and he's actually a good dude now. And like, okay, so when does it get funny? <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, we're not reviewing that, but there's uh, the making of season five uh, in terms of the new extras here, um, Fighting Gravity, which is about nine minutes, which is Zoom interviews with the crew members, which was fun. Animation and com compositing for two minutes, uh, technical stuff. B-Story Generators, volume one and two, which are very fun with Rob Schraub and Dan Harmon, who basically Rob Schraub wrote all this stuff on post-it notes and put it in there. They're just sort of like non sequitur, weird stuff. And had Dan pull it out, and then he would have to come up with, like, the story based on whatever weird non-sequitur shit that Rob Schraub put in the box, which is funny. Those guys are great at that kind of improv, so it's a yeah. cute bit. Uh, backgrounds, design elements thing. Coloring Rick and Morty, again. Uh, directing Mortiplicity uh, features Lucas Gray. Directing Rick, Rick, Mirai, ja Rick Mirai Jack features Jacob Hare. Uh, there's Season Hype, which is Dan Harmon and crew members doing... Basically, just a promo bit, I assume, for the network. Uh, and inside the episode shorts, which for each episode, which is a little short, like under two minute bits for each one, brief interviews that go with each episode. And yeah, I mean, like if you really like Rick and Morty, they for each season, they put together a really solid series of bonus things and really funny extra features. And, you know, I mean, I, I do. And this is one of the animated shows I do go back and rewatch. So I'm yeah. glad to have it. I'm like, yeah, it's, sometimes you're just really in the mood for Rick and Morty and the, and it hits that sweet spot. I think it's a smarter show than people give it credit for as well. Oh, it's very, I think it's an incredibly smart show. Yeah. Like, I mean, that's kind of its whole raison d'etre was like, we want to do sci-fi in not a meta way, but in a questioning the absurdity of so many things that we take for granted in the context of not just sci-fi, but other things. Like there's that episode from, I think, season four where they deconstruct con films completely and just shit 
all over con films wow. and it's one of the best episodes ever on rick and morty it's so fantastic but and i love con films but i'm like yeah you're right <laughs> anyway that's it for digital noise i think since you know i mean rick and morty is is great but it's also like you know it's kind of a a double dip really because they just put out this exact same set like less than a year ago pretty much uh so since i know we were kind of meh about everything uh, i'm gonna say it's the last waltz just because if you're a fan of this type of thing it's an exceptionally well done package for an exceptional movie for it it's the only thing in here where i can genuinely say i think this is a truly great movie but you know, like all music documentaries, you've got to at least have somewhat of a taste for the film. I remember somebody telling me they hated Stop Making Sense. And I was like, what? And they're like, ended up being like, I, well, I can't stand talking heads. Oh, well, <laughs> I'm like, yeah. well, yeah, why would you watch it in the first place then? For John, this one was because I made him watch it. <laughs> he has a good excuse. Yeah. <laughs> uh, if I had pick of the week, this is this is the hardest. I've been doing this for a few years now. It's the only time on the drive over here where I was like, what if I just didn't have one? <laughs> what if for the first time ever I was just like, nah, none of these. Um, I, I will. Here's how I'm going to do this. Here's how I'm going to do this. My favorite single thing out of the stack was Edward James almost in Zoot Suit. Yeah. I thought he was weirdly. There's something about him that's almost like a living skeleton. Yeah. He's very, very thin and he has this thing that he does with his where he tilts his head back and shows his teeth a lot. Yeah. He looks almost skeletal, very sinister. Yeah. Um, I think out of everything, my favorite thing of anything was Edward James Olmos' performance in Zoot Suit. Yeah. So I would give this like a mild pick of the week. <laughs> I think the better package is Last Waltz. I think that if you like oh, the definitely. band, I think the better package is that. And if you like the band, then... Yeah, definitely. And it is a classic amongst concert films. It's just not my cup of tea, so it's hard for me to go to bat for it. Yeah, so. I haven't watched a lot of the so-called classic concert films because I'm just like, it's not, just that many. not necessarily my thing. I yeah. mean, there are. There's only a few that anyone ever yeah. talks about. You know, I think recently a, a really great one is Summer of Soul, which I, I finally watched. Well, after almost everybody else was like, yep, this is just as good as everybody said it was. <laughs> it's like really, really, Summer really well done. Summer of Soul, I don't want to say upsets me. I cannot fathom for the life of me where the rest of the footage is. Yeah. Like, how come no one has released the entire event? That's, I'm just like, where's that? How come on Hulu, yeah. I can watch Summer of Soul, but then I can't go over and watch the I mean, the streaming event. on Hulu, you're like, <laughs> did nobody, I mean, they just did like four hours or what, six hours on one fucking Beatles album. <laughs> you know, we can, I think we could do like a nine episode event on on Hulu of just like here's like the complete concert footage. I just want to see the complete thing. thing. You know, I just want to see the complete thing. I don't know why there's not every. It's I'm frustrated because it sounds like everybody was like Summer of Soul, very very excellent documentary. Clap clap clap. All right, what's next? And I'm like, no, wait, that was like a <laughs> trailer. <more> that <laughs> that was to me that documentary was like an hour and a half trailer for this other thing that's like hours and hours long. Yeah. And I've been wanting that other thing that's hours long ever since i watched summer of soul okay so you did really like it you just wanted a billion times more show. Of it. yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a tease because like it sorry is. no footage for you no 